Miss the show? No worries. We've got you covered on our podcast on point tonight. Why are Canadian families being kept from being with their loved ones in their final moments? We will uh, talk about one of the cruelest made up COVID rules that has gone uh, severely unreported during this uh, pandemic. Your hydro costs are heading up. And if you don't like the higher costs, then let this be a reminder about what's to come Canada wide with the Trudeau green recovery. And is a racist, boorish comment hate speech? Does it meet the threshold? And can we charge our way out of being racist? We'll talk about that and more. Let's get started. What's your point? You just don't ever get the point. By getting through to you, that's the point. Do you understand? There is a point. That point where enough is enough. Here's Alex Pearson on Global News Radio. Are you listening? The federal government was warned years ago that the Public Health Agency of Canada was destined for serious problems unless changes were made to oversight. And yet two top doctors told the globe that those concerns were ignored. Uh, Prime Minister, what is your response to this? Um, we all knew that under the conservative, previous conservative government, there were massive cuts to science. There was marginalization of scientific voices. There was uh, a putting aside of experts uh, in, a, in an attempt to uh, cut the budget, uh, cut the deficit at all costs on the backs of Canadians. Yes, that's it. Five years later, Stephen Harper is to blame for COVID-19 because it's always someone else's fault when Justin Trudeau screws up. Alex Pearson with you on this Wednesday, October 14th. I hope you had a great day. Certainly being treated to a lovely fall with Mother Nature, so there is the upside. But, you know, there is going to be plenty of blame to go around on this thing as to how we got caught so flat-footed by a pandemic we had plenty of warning about. And the prime minister's made it pretty clear that the buck is not going to stop with him. And he was asked directly by the Globe and Mail Tuesday why his government ignored the warnings of doctors who told him that the health system was unprepared to deal with emergencies should one arrive. And Trudeau simply blamed Harper for cutting health costs and marginalizing scientists. But... The problem for Trudeau, and he's got many, is that the doctors warned him back in 2015. So he's had five years of them, four of them as a majority government, to fix all the things he blames Harper for breaking. And he didn't. Instead, Trudeau kept the same same flawed health funding formula as the Harper government. In fact, they extended it until 2024. And yeah, sure, they're throwing billions at health now, but Trudeau had the chance to fix what he condemned Harper for, and instead, well, he signed on to it. And politicians can only get away blaming a previous government before the buck actually has to stop with them. And sure, when it comes to this pandemic, much of the blame should be placed firmly at Trudeau's, you know, fancy socked feet. Because it is not Harper's fault that the Trudeau government dismantled Canada's pandemic surveillance system. It was the Liberals. They did that back in 2019. It's not... uh, Harper's fault that there was no emergency stockpiles or medical equipment. No, no. It was the Trudeau government that shut down the warehouses, storing it, and landfilled millions of pieces of PPE. And then, of course, without bothering to check, gave 16 tons to China, who at that time was lying to the entire world about the illness. And, of course, they didn't bother to check, hey, do we have enough stock for, for Canadians? So that, that's not Harper's fault. It's also not Harper's fault that Patty Haidu ignored warnings from their own scientists back in December about this dangerous threat coming our way. 
And remember, Trudeau's always telling us how vital scientists are, you know, how much his government invests in science. So why didn't his government, you know, listen when those alarms were sounding? And, you know, here's what else isn't Harper's fault. It's not Harper's fault. They failed to shut down borders and travel to and from hotspots or the weak screening at airports that remains weak to this very day or the feckless quarantine rules that have no teeth and very few obey or even the rapid testing that comes way too late because, well, the Trudeau government didn't expedite it as they stated they would back in March. But, you know, when it comes to blame, I think it's clear that Trudeau's never going to take any. And even today, when he appeared on our sister station in Winnipeg, in Winnipeg, in Winnipeg, he, of course, blamed the provinces for the whole testing chaos. We gave them uh, $19 billion uh, over the summer so that they could ramp up their testing. Unfortunately, not uh, every province has hit their, uh, uh, their uh, the, the, the agreed to targets uh, that they'd committed to in terms of tests per day. Mm-hmm. Well, look, the bottom line is the provinces have no control over approving rapid testing. That is federal jurisdiction. And the feds dragged their feet for months on getting it done. I mean, Health Canada just approved it, what, last week? And Premier Ford, who I think has been way too generous in his praise of Trudeau, uh, got his first taste of what it's like to be thrown under that crowded bus. And he was asked about it today, and he was none too happy. You know, I'm not too sure who he's talking about, but he sure he wouldn't be talking about Ontario. I'll find out uh, uh, if he was mentioning us. I don't I hope it wasn't us. Of course he's talking about Ontario. And it was, it was only a matter of time before Premier Ford learns the scorpion is never a friend. He actually looked pretty perturbed once the question had been asked. But there's going to be blame at every level. Of course there is. Certainly over the response to COVID, the response to the second wave we all knew was coming. But it started with Trudeau. And it started with his government's, you know, initial inaction which then caused a domino effect because it was those crucial weeks back in December when he and Patty Haidu ignored the, the alarm bells going off, the scientists saying, hey, you got to watch this thing. And they chose to ignore the doctors in Wuhan, risking their lives, and many of them were killed or died suddenly, warning the world that, hey, this is happening. And so what they did was what Donald Trump was accused of doing, playing it down. You know, they told us it's low risk. We're prepared. And guess what? They were completely wrong. But I don't expect Trudeau will ever declare the buck stops with him. Because like all his other mistakes, they always become our learning experience. Be it a SNC, blackface, Aga Khan, whatever it was that she experienced differently. I mean, you just look at the new spin on the self-inflicted we scandal. We all know what happened with that. The Trudeau government lied and moved things around and made it so that good friends could get access to a near billion dollar deal that would have net them 40 something odd million dollars. And they got caught. And they now blame the opposition parties because his government played fast and loose with the rules. Take a listen. We've been open and transparent uh, on these questions. 
Uh, but the conservatives continue want to focus on that. Allow, they, they certainly can. We will stay focused on Canadians while we let committees do their work independently. I only wish Mr. Trudeau actually focused on Canadians. Certainly businesses. I mean, maybe if he had actually focused on what his job is supposed to be rather than entertaining the United Nations or hiding in that cottage he has. Maybe he would have gotten them the aid they have been you know, desperately needing for months. But no, he, he chose to play politics and he shut down Parliament instead during a pandemic, all to make that scandal go away, you know, to make sure the buck doesn't stop with him. But instead, you know, maybe trickles over to his rich little friends in high places. As I said, you know, there will be plenty of blame to go around when this thing is said and done. And it is time, you know, that the prime minister actually start accepting his uh, fair share. My heart breaks for, for all families. You know, I can't imagine when my, my mom passed away in January, if I didn't have the opportunity to be, be beside her, uh, be with your loved ones in, in their last hours or last days. And, and it comforts the, the people, e- even if they, they're sleeping or they're unconscious or whatever, you, they can hear you. And, you know, my break, my heart just breaks for people. That was Doug Ford today uh, speaking about an issue that you got to wonder, why is it happening then, you know, to hundreds of families across this country? I mean, every day we're hearing COVID horror stories, but this one is just simply cruel. And the case Doug Ford's uh, talking about involves a colleague uh, in the industry who was told to come and say goodbye to his mother, who had taken an unexpected fall. And when he arrived at the hospital... Uh, was refused access to his mother as she lay dying alone. But this happened to a very close friend of mine over the summer. She was not allowed to see her dad as he was in his final moments of life because of these made-up COVID rules that uh, Dr. Yaffe today stated, you know, should not be happening. I mean, it's bad enough that we are locking up and isolating our elderly right across this country, but that families are actually being denied a chance to say goodbye or, you know, offer some comfort and company, company in those final moments is just, uh, it's not, it's not, and should not be happening in this country. Eileen Jad is with, uh, is a bereavement educator. She joins us now. Good to have you, Eileen. Oh, thank you for inviting me. And the, and the organization you are with is called Good Grief Bereavement. Um, you know, I, I will never forget those moments um, with my father in his in his final moments. Uh, it's a big part of the grieving process. And um, there are a lot of people that I don't think are even talking about it or even known um, who are going through this right now. Yeah, it's a very challenging time. Aside from professionally, I also went through this personally. My mother was moved to a long-term care home in March. Mm-hmm. And we spent 12 weeks not being able to see her as well. Um, so I really do feel for all the people that are going through this. It's very, it's very difficult. What does, um, what does it do to the grieving process for the person who will go on living? I mean, if you're saying, you know, your final goodbyes to your parent, um, you know, it gives you some sense of closure. It never goes away, certainly. But I would have to think that not being able to spend those last moments with someone you love um, it really would disrupt the grieving process. It, it does make it longer. It protracts the whole process. Um, and everything with COVID is taking longer. So it's not just not saying goodbye, but not having any of the rituals that um, you might have in your community. You know, any kind of support coming over, 
the numbers at funerals are much smaller than expected. Um, and not having those systems in place makes everything take a little bit longer. Well, because it's already a very lonely world, you know, when someone passes and you, you, you know, you're, you're, you're thrown back into a very busy world when, frankly, you just want to yell out and say, you know, I'm not ready for this. And it takes an awfully long time, um, you know, to get over it. And then when you're in a pandemic situation, it, it multiplies, uh, it multiplies the pain uh, exponentially. Exactly. And we don't have the people, you can't have some, you know, maybe you can have two or three people in your backyard to talk to you for a little bit. Um, but it's, it's not the same as having people over on a regular basis or someone taking you out because you're not, you're, you're so sad and, you, and you're having trouble making your own meals and, and just coping with day to day. You can't do it in the same way during a pandemic. What did you do? I mean, were you able to, to see your mother? Um, we fortunately were able to see our mother, um, but she did take a turn for the worse and she passed away in August. But we did get a couple visits in. But again, our funeral arrangements, we could only have 20 people at a funeral and that kind of thing. Um, what we ended up doing is looking for new rituals and new ways of, um, of marking the situation and remembering her. So, <clears throat> excuse me. So, for instance, we put together a tribute. We had no cousins that could come in town. None of her siblings, she didn't have siblings, but any cousins. Um, or any friends or family, they couldn't come in town, right, because of the pandemic. So we put together a Zoom tribute. So as much as we don't love Zoom and technology and it can't replace in-person visits, it was really helpful um, for us and all the other people to express their feelings and um, to talk about the life that was lived. And certainly for the person passing, I mean, obviously in those last palliative days, it's hard to know if uh, if they know uh, their child or their their um, sister or brother is with them, but certainly um, it, it must offer some comfort. Yeah, you hope. Yeah, so, yeah. We don't know how much they know. Um, um, the palliative doctors that spoke to us um, said, you know, they can hear you and um, and that kind of thing. So we we were trying to do that. But if you don't have that opportunity, it's going to add a layer of, of of a different kind of layer of grieving to regular grieving. And when you were talking about closure, um, closure is getting back to your new normal. And it's, it's going to take a lot longer to get to some new normal because there's so many unanswered questions. Right. And 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 anger builds. And, uh, I mean, grief is like a roller coaster. It's got uh, these different phases uh, to it. It doesn't just happen and then go away. It lasts, I think, for for, for some people for many, many, many years. What, what advice and... Um, uh, guidance are you giving to people um, right now who are going through this that maybe you wouldn't have been doing before? Well, basically, you're not alone, um, and these are very real feelings. And if you are feeling them more intense, um, you may want to seek some help, and that's totally that's totally fine because it, it is a very difficult situation, and it's hard to deal with sometimes on your own. And um, you know, you can go for individual counseling or we have groups, support groups or people that have lost people during COVID or in other kinds of situations. Or um, sometimes we have like we have a bereavement buddy program where you can match people with um, who've had a similar experience with informal support. So there's just different ways of reaching for support. And I think we all have to look for them and the non-grievers who want to support their grieving family and friends 
have to be in touch more regularly in the ways that are available to us now. Yeah, it seems uh, it seems the ultimate uh, cruelty, though, to uh, to not allow. And I think it requires some outside the box thinking in, in difficult yeah. times um, to, to you know, remember that, uh, you know, the mental damage and, and health damage you do to people by, um, you know, robbing them of, the, of those moments. It really, truly is cruel. It's hard to believe that it's happening, but uh, it is happening. And sadly, to a number of people I've, uh, I've known along the way. I appreciate your um, your insight into this, Eileen. Thank you. Thank you very much. And I'm sorry for your loss as well. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Josh Telemark had submitted with his photo a caption that was supposed to go in the yearbook saying, rest in peace, Grandma. Thank you for guiding me through my four years of high school. But what ended up in the final cut was a message referring to this young man as a gorilla saying, and I quote this, rest in peace, Harambe Duga Buga O. And Harambe is the name of a gorilla at a zoo in Ohio. My first question is, how on God's name did this even happen? I mean, don't schools have people that check the yearbooks, the proof before it's signed and sent for print? Was it someone at the school or did someone at the printing company decide to get creative? Regardless, it never should have happened. Uh, so it's now being investigated by Durham police, possibly as a hate crime. But does racist ignorance meet that threshold of hate speech? Let us ask someone. Joe Newberger is our global news legal expert. And Joe, I started wondering this. I mean, it is severely ignorant, no question. It is malicious. It, and I think maybe maybe a case of mischief if, if we find out that someone at the printing company did it. But does a racist incident like this meet the actual threshold of hate crime? I, I don't think so. And you, you raise very good points, Alex. So it's certainly a situation if this was an individual at the printing company, this could result in a mischief charge for sure. But in order to qualify as a hate crime under the criminal code, it has to be a communication that in and of itself not only incites hatred of an identifiable group, but is likely to lead to a breach of the peace, or that would be some form of criminal activity, like whether it would be a harassment or assault or threatening or some other further criminal conduct that would breach the peace. So when you step back and you think about the impact of this on this poor young man and, and the students, it's absolutely horrific and appalling, but it does not, in my opinion, rise to the level of a hate crime under the criminal code. Unless, and I don't know if this would count, I mean, if this young man, um, and he said that this is his first um, exposure or experience with racism like this, I mean, if he starts becoming teased and all of a sudden people are calling him gorilla, would that then uh, fall under the, the, the hate speech? Well, well, if he starts to receive, if he starts to receive threats, because we, we know there's cyberbullying and all sorts yeah. of things that go on. So if, and, and this is where the law has to evolve with technology and what our current situation is now, because we're living in a very fractious time in our lives, as you know, mm -hmm. no doubt, Alex, and have to deal with every day with your, uh, your shows. Um, if, if this young man starts to receive some form of uh, harassment via the internet or social media, we are now starting to border on inciting of behavior that constitutes a breach of the peace. And then it can evolve into a crime of hatred. One would hope that uh, his fellow students and other individuals will not act in such a way because it's repugnant mm -hmm. um, and it not only offends this young man and, and his 
his background, but anybody uh, in Canada from whatever background you're from. But you're right. If it starts to evolve into that type of behavior uh, where he's being harassed, whether through the Internet or in person, it may now rise because people are uh, aligning with this type of ridiculous, repugnant behavior. And then it may constitute a hate crime. But at this stage, without more, I don't think it's something which has risen to the level of being likely to result in a breach of the peace. And, you know, yearbooks have student committees and there's always a teacher involved. So I would have to think that someone in the school had to sign off on the proof copy before it goes to print. I just cannot imagine that they don't dot the I's and cross the T's. So what liability would be uh, possible uh, that the school faces? um, And if it was someone at the printing company, you know, who decided to get crafty, is there still a liability or would there or there there could be criminal um, charges in that case then? Right. Well, you know, it depends. So if it's somebody at the printing company and, and we, they can discover who it is and what they've done, it's damage to property. So this is right. this is a clear mischief. And it will be, although it's not a hate crime per se, it certainly will be treated more seriously because the element of it is to promote hate, which will be an aggravating factor. If, however, um, you know, no checks were followed at the school and you're talking about other type of liability, although one normally would not commence a, a legal action for this, it's not beyond imagination that you may want some redress because proper procedures or protocols not in place to sign off on these yearbooks, as you say, to make sure that they're they're appropriate for distribution. I mean, it's shocking that this actually got distributed to all the students, and no now kidding. they actually have to have all the students come back and drop off the books. It's like, does somebody not look at this? So, yeah, well, it could attract some, some liability. Yeah, and then there, and then you know, if the kids haven't, some will you know take a picture of it to keep it, and then they start passing it around on the web. There, there are real damages from this kind of thing, um, you know, because some people won't be sensitive to it. They'll just say, "Hey, did you see the picture of this?" So there is going to always be, I think, a permanent copy uh, of this. Um, we'll call it transgression, even though that doesn't really kind of sum it up uh, properly. Right. Yeah. Well, there's always. You know, these these types of activities always have reverberations going forward, especially because of the technology age we live in now. Yeah. Now, you know, there was a case in York Region, um, and it wasn't so long ago where an 18-year-old student was charged with indecent communications because he was accused of making a racist anti-Black comment during an online lesson in September. Hate crimes did look into that as well. It didn't meet the um, the threshold of that, but would that I understand that it's ignorant, but is ignorance a chargeable offense? You know, that this is a very interesting situation because in my career, and I think many others who've been in uh, the criminal justice system, has not seen a charge of indecent communication, um, I think, ever. So I can imagine circumstances uh, where the charge is appropriate. But I think at the nub of what you're saying is when does it rise to a level of criminality? And so if comments were made on an online uh, session at school that clearly were offensive, racially motivated, repugnant, all the terms that we want to use with it, does that rise to the level of criminality as opposed to sheer ignorance, stupidity, and anything else you want to say it? And I think it's a stretch because in, in this section for indecent communications, it really starts to get very murky as to what is an indecent communication. I think we can all agree at a normal moral level that this type of communication is wrong and bad. But when you start to cross the road between how do you distinguish between this communication and then others that become 
censorship of freedom of speech. And, and I don't want anybody to get me wrong in listening to this, that I don't think racially motivated comments that uh, are deleterious to identifiable groups is in any way acceptable. But we still have to be careful to not cross a threshold where we're criminalizing unpopular or repugnant, stupid speech, um, because who draws that line? Who makes that distinction? Yeah. And it does that trend between where we are in a political social life, uh, who's an unpopular part of our society. I'm very worried about where it can go. Uh, and we start to censor, censor speech in a much more stringent way where we're criminalizing this type of conduct. Again, if this type of conduct resulted in, in the, uh, the online session having to be stopped, you know, there might be other ways of dealing with this. Um, but I'm, I'm unclear right now because of the amorphous nature of that section. And there's not a lot of case law defining what specifically is, you know, indecent speech. I think, again, I said from a moral standpoint, we can all agree on it. But I have concerns about criminalizing, you know, this type of conduct, because I, I guarantee you this isn't going to be the last time that this happens in a public forum. Well, it's not. I mean, you just look at the Al Quds rally where they wish uh, death to Jews, um, you know, and there have been uh, Black Lives Matter T-shirts that are out there with the image of hook-nosed Jews holding fistfuls of money, crushing what appear to be black people uh, under a monopoly table. I mean, there's all sorts of, of hate. There's no, um, you know, all sorts of people are exposed to it. But again, I, I just don't think we're going to charge our way out of it. In fact, um, it could actually be more divisive, but nonetheless... I absolutely agree with you. And you raise those examples, which are very apt because we see this against people, of the Jewish community, uh, you know, and other communities. And are we going to push people who are marginalized on this line between what's right or wrong, you know, to a more offensive position because we're criminalizing things? And are we better off to deal with this through a manner of education and, uh, you know, dealing with how people should be tolerant and accept diversity and respect other people and educate them on it and understand how hurtful it is and charging, as you say, to try and charge people to get out of this type of behavior, I think is going to backfire, frankly. Stay tuned. We will see where this story, in fact, takes us. It's just unfortunate that we have to talk about it. Joe, appreciate your time. Thank you, Alex. Take care and have a great show. Welcome back. Well, if you didn't hear it, uh, we're about to get hit with another hydro hike. Uh, so coming November 1st, you can expect a 2.24 cent jump. It's not a big jump, but it is a jump nonetheless in the wrong direction. And part of it is because during the first wave of the pandemic, hydro costs were set at a flat cost because we were working for home and it was to help people. But now in stage two, apparently that savings is not going to continue. But moving forward, Customers are going to be given a choice of tiered pricing instead of being charged based on when you use hydro. And this is also very confusing. Region to region, um, the price is changing. So based on where you live, it will be the package you're offered. But the reality is we are paying huge hydro costs for years of government mismanagement of hydro. And this disastrous green mistake made under the McGinty Wind government, which the Trudeau government now wants to take countrywide. Ross McKittrick is a Canadian economist specializing in environmental economics and policy analysts, and he's also a professor of economics at the University of Guelph. Good to have you, Ross. Thanks, Alex. Not a big jump, but a jump nonetheless. But the reality is, um, you know, we're still subsidizing hydro to keep it low. So the whole thing is a giant shell game, uh, somewhat fraudulent, because there's nothing transparent or fair about it for the consumer. 
Yeah, shell game, that's a, a good way to describe it because um, nobody really pays the right cost. And um, when the government says they're going to get hydro costs down, all they end up doing is subsidizing hydro and then loading the cost onto the taxpayers. The, um, uh, the Ford government came in angry about what had happened to hydro prices, as, as they should be, as we all are. But they never really grappled with the cause. At least they haven't so far. They um, they made some cancellations of additional uh, wind and solar contracts and a few things like that. So it slowed down the rate of increase. But they haven't really grappled with what they need to do to actually get the cost down, which is to unravel some of these above market payment rates which now dominate the whole supply system. We, we, have, a, we have a supply situation where um, all of the major power producers aren't being paid the wholesale market rate. They're not competing the way suppliers normally do in a market. They're all getting guaranteed contract rates. And in a lot of cases, they're way above the market rate, and they're locked in on these contracts for years to come, and we pay the global adjustment, which is a surcharge that funds all these these special contracts. And that's where the government needs to um, get active and start um, getting out of these contracts. And until they're willing to do that, we're just going to keep seeing these stories. I mean, the costs will keep going up. Um, what you're referring to today is really just removing a temporary fix of the, the tiered time of use pricing that they put in early in the pandemic. Um, we're just going back to what was the originally scheduled um, set of prices. Right. And when the Ford government ran, and actually this is, uh, as I remember, was in the Patrick Brown um, policy book when, when he was going to run, um, it was, we'll reduce your hydro, we will bring down the cost. But but to do that, it's, again, the shell game where you're subsidizing it to bring the prices down. Because the real story that no one really talks about is to fix this thing, we would have to shell out billions and billions and billions of dollars. Um, yeah, we're um, uh, we're stuck with these long-term contracts. It is possible for the government to play hardball, renegotiate them, get get out of these long-term costs, but um, they have to be willing to do it. And um, uh, there are um, the the way the contracts work. Um, without getting into the weeds too much, when one part of the electricity generating sector uh, is guaranteed a certain payment, what they do is they bid at very low prices in the wholesale market, so they increase their market share. And then that increases everybody else's losses, so it has this amplifying effect on the global adjustment on this this surcharge. So the this, the system as it was set up was was unbelievably short-sighted. I don't know how they could possibly have done this and, and not anticipated what would happen. And what's happening is that we are paying extremely inflated electricity prices. A small group of people are getting very wealthy off it. Mm-hmm. And it's it's uh, it's driving out our manufacturing base and it's harming a lot of households. And as I say, the, uh, the Ford government came in on uh, a wave of grievance over what's happened. Uh, and I think they know what they need to do to fix it. They just don't seem at this point to have uh, summoned up the, the will to do it. Yeah, and it might be a distraction from the pandemic. Who knows? But the, but it's not going away. And now the same group of people 
that brought in the disastrous Green Energy Act of Ontario are now at the federal level. And we, you know, when I hear about this green recovery, I mean, it's to me, I mean, Ontario should be a warning for the rest of Canada as to what is to come. Not because we don't want to be good to the environment and do our part, but if they plan to roll out what we did in Ontario, this country is going to go bankrupt. It is the same people. I mean, it is almost name by name. Uh, a group of staffers that transferred to Ottawa. And um, they are very ideological in their outlook. And I think they look at Ontario and and they don't see it as a failure. They look at it as, well, we did what we set out to do, which was to radically increase energy costs. And even though the the environmental improvements weren't even all that big. I mean, there were very small changes uh, and could have been accomplished at a far lower cost. That's another thing about Ontario. As you say, people want to do the right thing for the environment, but there's no reason to do it using a strategy that's 10 times more expensive than um, the next option. So um, it is discouraging to see that the people in Ottawa, having learned nothing about their mistake in Ontario, have their eyes now on spreading the harm right across the country. What's the biggest concern you have? I mean, we've got the the, the second you know carbon tax of the the clean you know clean fuel um, tax that's going to come in. But what what are you watching for that you think will uh, be the big you know hit to the pocketbook? Um, well, the clean fuel standard is is a wild card. They set up some very conflicting signals about what they actually plan, plan to do, what the compliance options will be. Um, and so it could end up being uh, just a bit of window dressing, but at the other end of the scale, it could be extremely harmful, um, put in very large cost increases. We'd be looking at a 60% increase in the cost of natural gas, another 10 to 15 uh, cents a liter in gasoline. So um, it, again, it, it really depends on where their final strategy comes down. My big concern with all of these, though, isn't that there's going to be one giant hit that just knocks everybody off their feet and, and uh, suddenly everyone realizes how bad this is. It's it's more mm-hmm. the, the slow deflation of the economy, just, you know, one by one companies closing up, investors getting discouraged, people aren't going to try to undertake big projects anymore. It's just you wake up after 10 years and you wonder what happened because the economy just has completely stopped. And um, that's more what I'm concerned about. It's it's the, the slow drain of resources and capital out of the economy because at every turn, investors and entrepreneurs just get discouraged and find there are better places to do business. Yeah, now we've already started to see it. Certainly, uh, the refinery shutting down on the east coast. You've got like the, you know businesses have been pulling up for for a long time, saying it's too hard to do business. And I guess when Mr. Trudeau said he would phase out the oil sands, he certainly was not kidding about that. Ross, I appreciate your time on this. Okay, thanks, Alex. Always good to talk to you. That is Ross McKittrick joining us here. So look, consider yourself warned. Um, it can sound a lot of times better than it actually is. And sadly, a lot of people are going to get hurt. When we come back, speak about hurting, the airline industry is really hurting. Porter staying grounded until at least December. Now WestJet's not going to be servicing Atlantic Canada. Are we going back to having only one carrier? And should the Trudeau government be providing aid, given there are a big reason why there's so many restrictions on these airlines? We will talk about that and what airline the airline industry could look like in this country and what it means for you as a consumer. So we'll do that in just a minute. Stay with us here, Alex Pearson on point, and this is 
Global News Radio. Thanks for listening. That, of course, you can listen to us live Monday through Friday, 6.30 to 10. Join us for On Point. I'm Alex Pearson. This is Global News Radio.